it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> It's the Late Show with Francie Weatherman. This morning, looking for my shoes, look behind the trunk, found the hesitation blues. Lordy, tell me how long? Lordy, tell me how long? Well, I have to wait. Well, I have to wait. Can I get you now? Can I get you now? Must I hesitate? Charles, uh, yes, Charles, 
I, I, I see your number. You're on the switchboard. That was our opening song. Um, now, William, I know I'm going to get his last name. I'm going to mispronounce it. You're the pro here. Who do we have on tonight? Charles Pellegrino, famed explorer and author. Cool. Okay. Yes. I'm I'm very excited about the show. Uh, I've been talking to him. He seems like a really nice guy. Uh, Charles, we're going to do a soft opening, and uh, we're going to bring you on. Uh, and we're very excited. And, uh, Charles, like I told you, uh, William's really giddy about this show tonight. Oh, yes, without a doubt. <laughs> and I'll explain why. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right, um, uh, I got a huge announcement. Oh, of course, we are joined also by Mr. Tom Sawyer. Hello. Hey, how's it going, guys? You had it by yourself, Tom. Yeah, not bad, you know. Just celebrated my 39th wedding anniversary yesterday. You know, wow. Happy well, your October has yeah. been busy. Yeah, our granddaughter's birthday was the 22nd on Friday, so... Yeah, October's and a busy it, month for us. The month of Halloween and birthdays and anniversaries. And you, know? you walk your daughter down the aisle to get married to say yeah, I the do. Yeah, first of the month. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Must be that Halloween month. You know, there's something about it. We just do everything this month. You know. Oh yeah. 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 The, the Libra the next month. To play. <laughs> you know, next month just throw the turkey in the oven and sit back and relax. Exactly. Mm. All right, uh, Tom, oh, yeah. William, I got a huge announcement to make. Cool. Okay. I don't know if you guys seen this on Facebook. John Link woke up from his coma, a coma today. Oh, that's great. Good. God. Yes, he's been in a coma. Yeah. And, in fact, Thursday night we, we did a special show for uh, John Link to uh, – let it, hopefully, you know, Edward, he's going to be there with him tonight, and he said he's going to play the show for him, which I know he will. Uh, so uh, congratulations, John Link. Now just get better. <laughs> he woke up, so we're really happy yes, about good that. Good morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you enjoy your nap? <laughs> No, so we're we're really I was I was really excited uh when I got that news. Uh Nicholas Grabowski, you're on. Any big announcements? Uh not necessarily except for the fact that we still do have books coming out by Fred Weehy and Carson Buckingham and Raina Young and Chuck W. Chapman. Um Fred Weehy's book will likely come out this week, but everything else is on hold until after Halloween because, by golly, by gosh, every year we have like a, a, like a, upwards to 900 trick-or-treaters at our big Halloween event. And this year's big Halloween event has been like, um, uh, oh, I can't think of the word, but crapped all over. <laughs> by um, the weather, and earlier on, we even had like like people egging us, and that took like a half a day. 
especially the second fight. Uh, we haven't had that for like three weeks, but it's it's like January weather here right now, and a lot of stuff overnight was like torn down. It's still raining. It's going to rain for like two days, and everything that we have on like fishing wire held up is is like is like going down and down and down with the weight of the rain on the special handmade like ghosts and goblins and creatures and people that we created it's just it's a fiasco so i'm kind of waiting and praying until wednesday when there's actually going to be sunlight supposedly and then we can clean up and get ourselves ready for a big halloween annual event where we're going to give away children's books and all kinds of like things and open up the backyard to like hopefully a record number of people more than 900 trick-or-treaters this time and and hopefully fingers crossed we'll be prepared for that and black bedsheet books banners and everything are going to be everywhere of course and uh and it's sponsored by that as is this show <laughs> uh so yeah that was a mouthful but yep um after halloween we're going to be getting ready for uh christmas and the the the, the end of the year seasons and thanksgiving and uh, we're going to have our our annual black friday event so there's going to be brand new titles from black bedsheet books coming out by thanksgiving weekend and before christmas in time for the christmas season you hear on the news about the cargo stuff going on and that there's going to be shortages and so forth black bedsheet books if you guys love horror science fiction and fantasy they will still be here they're not imported on cargo ships so remember that remember <laughs> there you go there you go <laughs> all right william yeah you wanted to introduce them Yes, please. It must be time. Is, am I right? It is. It's, we're right on schedule for once. Wow. Okay. Awesome I know. So, Don't well, say that. Well, I'm sorry you're a little late on that part. So, in that case, uh, I'm going to start by uh, telling a quick story, you know, what better place than a uh, radio show that uh, celebrates the arts and authors anyways? So, All right. Sounds um, good. Yeah. So, lady, ladies and gentlemen, um, very, very fun story and true story, obviously. Back in 1995, um, I was just less than a year of graduating high school, and uh, – you know, I was still fairly young in the uh, sense of doing my research on Titanic and everything else. Uh, that was pushing almost 15 years of research. And uh, the members of the uh, Titanic International Society actually had um, reached out and made an offer to me that uh, if I were to at least come up with the uh, hotel and the airfare, that uh, they would waive all all other fees and that asked me to be a guest at their uh, upcoming convention in New York City. So, understandably, uh, from you know saving up some of my graduation money uh, for the summer of '94 and you know just kind of letting it sit there and build off and on doing side jobs and projects and things like that, 
you know, lo and behold, uh, May of 1995, my, you know, then fiance, now currently my wife, Cindy, and I flew up to New York and attended the convention. And, uh, you know, for starters, both of us were the typical Florida tourists because, you know, there's skyscrapers there and there were buildings that were way bigger than us. And more surprisingly, and of all, being in the summertime, it was 70 degrees up there instead of the normal 90 that we're used to down here. So, you know, we were understandably acting like the typical tourists, without a doubt. So we fast forward to the convention, and uh, this is one of those cases where um, Charles Pellegrino was just walking down the hall, and I was walking, you know, just uh, into the uh, convention room, and we passed one another. And, you know, I stopped him, and and I was like, you know, are you Charles R. Pellegrino, the author of Her Name Titanic? And he's like, yes, yes, I am. And, you know, I, you know, just being the fanboy and everything else, I brought up pictures of my budding library and collection of memorabilia. And ironically enough, it was just one of those cases where it was just funny on the timing more than anything else. But uh, lo and behold, um, you know, Charlie was tickled pink that I actually had his book within my collection at that time. And I let him know that I had read it about three times after purchasing it. And so during the course of that whole weekend, uh, we ended up becoming table mates during the course of the whole convention. And so, you know, over that weekend, um, I was getting writing advice and tips and research advice, you know, from a very well-respected uh, explorer and historian. And, you know, I, I just soaked it up like a sponge. And then um, by the time I had to uh, get ready to leave to come back to Florida, you know, I asked him for his autograph, and uh, he autographed my scrapbook, and he wrote, uh, don't get your feet wet. And, you know, he was <laughs> like, you know, this was advice that was given to Neil Armstrong before he went on to the moon, and uh, I think it's pretty suitable. And, you know, I you know, I still have the autograph and everything else. And, uh, you know, to this day, I was I always have to laugh about it because he was so true. Because once you go into the rabbit hole of the Titanic community, it's a whole other ballgame altogether. But, you know, you know, he was one of the first people to help, you know, encourage me and, and push me into doing everything that I had done you know, over the course of these 26 years. And, you know, I've been very fortunate enough that with the advent of, you know, Facebook and social media that we were able to reconnect with each other. And, you know, understandably over that time, you know, not only do, you know, do we reconnect, but so I'm happy to say that, you know, I have still continuously bought every single book that he has written up to date. And uh, even some of his movies too. And, uh, you know, enjoy them and always brag about them uh, you know, with absolute pride. So, you know, la- ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Charles Pellegrino. Yay! Welcome, Charles. Hi, Yay. can you hear me? Yep, we hear you just fine. Okay. All right, so even though I'm on speaker, it's all right. If uh, you need better sound quality, I'll take it off speaker. You're, you're good to go. Um, Oh, yeah, okay. yep, yep. yeah. And eager ears listening to you. Sorry, our first meeting. 
Indeed. You know, and, you know, yeah. I, 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 like I said, I mean, I'm, I, I always be with pride whenever I see that you're working on something. So, uh, Oh, you don't have all my books. I can guarantee you that. Oh, okay. So well, you have to tell yeah, me what's I on. Do several, I do a few uh, books under pen names, and that'll come out in the near future. Some people, well, enough great. people have figured out who was writing them and so on. So, But I'm leaving <laughs> that to, uh, I promised Ian Punnett that I'd uh, let him be the one who revealed who was writing those thrillers. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, in that case, you have to. That means there's one, more there goodies may be to look forward to. Where the Titanic does not show up in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that's even more interesting then. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So now she does not show up in everything else I write, but you know, as Bob Ballard had warned all the way back. During the 1985 expedition to the East Pacific rise and the hydrothermal vents, and we were out there with uh, most of the ship were people involved in oceanography, deep ocean exploration, volcanology, uh, a lot of very uh, brilliant polymathic people on the expedition, and uh, here I was. 1985, and I'm talking about Valkyrie rockets and probes to the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and helicopter robot probes to Saturn's moon Titan. And meanwhile, I'm on a ship full of people who every time a space shuttle is launched, that's years of their research going up in smoke as they saw it. And uh, most Tom Detwill or everyone else, they were out there to get away from Titanic. And so it was, and I, I knew nothing about the Titanic at that time. And uh, here I am on a ship with people who were getting away from just having been traumatized over not only the Titanic and seeing the empty lifeboat, lifeboat davit and the one davit uh, that was cranked in and seeing that, but the whole response to it and the crush of people after they got back. And then Bob Ballard starts saying, well, someone said at breakfast one morning, if you mention Valkyrie Rockets one more time, I'm going to kill you. And the guy next to us said, and I'll help her do it. <laughs> All the way out here in the middle of the Pacific, only the sharks can hear you. <laughs> they were saying very but, uh, you know, someone said, you know, stop talking about space. It can be a very lonely ship when 40 people hate you. And so Bob Ballard and Tom Detwiller start. Uh, Detwiller was the guy who designed the robot that uh, first uh, probed the, and then with 400 ASA cameras took all those fantastic pictures of the Titanic only weeks earlier. And uh, they started, uh, Ballard started handing me all these photos and uh, videotapes to look at and everything and said, here, and Bit Wheeler gave me a copy of A Night to Remember, the illustrated copy, one of the copies that had been with him from which they had actually identified the boiler. And they said, here, read this. Look at these. Stop talking about space. And that was my <laughs> baptism in the Titanic. And it was actually also uh, somehow the Titanic became the thing that legitimized 
the started to legitimize the field of forensic archaeology. In 1985, the Titanic wasn't even old enough to really be in the realm of archaeology. And oh, wow. uh, here I was, one of the people I was out there with, and we ended up working together years later on uh, forensic archaeology of how the World Trade Center collapsed, Harold or Sigurdsson. And uh, he was mentored by Sarah Bizell, who brought the crime lab, excuse me, the crime lab methods into the excavations at Pompeii's sister city of Herculaneum. And she and he began figuring out all the phases of the eruption as we now know them. And interestingly, Sarah had been treated like garbage by a lot of people, except by National Geographic. They really helped her and uh, helped her to establish the field. But whenever we talk about forensic archaeology, I always uh, try to make sure Sarah's name is remembered. Because they can't hear you. No, they can't. You know, now, you know, since understandably, um, you know, with us with it being Halloween and everything else, on the, you know, one thing that um, I'm going to hold you to this because you, when when I asked you about this during that weekend 26 years ago, you told me that I had to wait and ask you at a later date, and I hope that this is later enough. But. Um, <laughs> How did you how did you manage to get an endorsement for her name Titanic by Stephen King? Oh, Stephen King and I had known each other for quite a while before that. And in fact he was one of the people who uh some people some of you know about the ad hoc tribunals in New Zealand where about ten of us were put on these secret trials for the crime of having published in the area of evolution. Uh, for about two or three years, the country went really kind of nuts, kind of like America today. <laughs> yeah. And that's how I ended up here. And I, you know, no matter how right you are, people are saying terrible things to you all the time and busting up your laboratory and everything. And you got an evangelical on the radio uh, taking apart your birthday to do numerology to come up with 666. And because you're talking about uh, biomorphing dinosaurs from amber, you're a minion of Satan and all that, no matter how right you may feel and know you are at heart, you still come away with the bad dog feeling. And King and I had been corresponding, and uh, he, he right off, he said, okay, Cujo. Oh, that's cool. Stop pining away to yourself and get on with your work. Get over it. <laughs> oh, wow. Get over that bad dog feeling. And, and, I, and I had mentioned to him, I said, and they called me a literary slut. He said, well, I'm a literary slut too. You know, shits like us don't need visas or passports, and we don't even need passports. Living well and writing well, those are the best revenge. Get on with it. Don't be an ass. <laughs> That's actually that's actually really good advice. It's like this person don't yeah. pay your bills. Why do you care what they say? Yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. all through the later, uh, one of the things that the one thing that really ticked off the evangelicals uh, was when I had given a lecture at the National Observatory, who ultimately became the Jurassic Park recipe. 
And uh, I was being told afterward, uh, because my office had been raided and a copy of my book had been taken, and that chapter was in there, and I was being told uh, by people who now had uh, government authority from the uh, religious extremists, uh, if you publish this book, we're going to make your life a boiling hell. And uh, I published it anyway. And that was TimeGate. And, uh, you know, there were attempts to stop it from being published and everything. And at first, I don't think many people read it at all. Isaac Asimov became a big fan of it, wrote the forward to it, and Michael Crichton liked it. And I felt like they must have been the only two people who read it. But no, what? They were enough. <laughs> and Stephen mm-hmm. King, of course, and Arthur Clarke. <laughs> yeah, well, I think. sounds like I, you're in good company there. Yeah. Yeah. For a fandom, you know, yeah. I mean. That, Nick, you had a run-in with Stephen King also. Are you there? Yes. Uh, I, yeah, oh. I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah, I was listening. Oh, I was just phone. on the computer, and the phone was across the room, so I, like, stumbled. Yeah, I heard oh. uh, Nick and Stephen King. Yeah, yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I had a couple of run-ins uh, with Stephen King, too, uh, back in, Oh, 1991 or two or something like that. That's when he gave me my blurb for my first 1988 mass market paperback horror novel. Um, wow. When I was Nicholas Randers before I did Halloween Four, the novel. But uh, um, uh, yeah, yeah, Stephen King is, and uh, since then, I mean, I can't believe the man's longevity. I mean, to this day, it, uh, above all other horror writers. So, um, yeah, but, uh, uh, but the, yeah, I actually, um, uh, I approached him in a hallway at the Anaheim Convention Center, and, uh, I, and he was going to go on stage, which later I, I saw him on stage uh, singing, playing guitar with the Rock Bottom Remainders back in the day. Ah. Um, and, and that was great. If you guys never heard it, Google it. It's a long story. No time for it right now. But um, I, I approached him in a hallway, and I and I asked him about my book that my publisher said he sent, and he acknowledged it and said, "Oh yeah, Nicholas Renders, Prey Serpents, Prey. Um, um, keep them coming, Nicholas." And he gave me a thumbs up, and then he had to like you know exit somewhere. So I've been using that quote. Uh, every once in a in a while, keep them coming, Nicholas. Whenever I publish something that's that's uh, mine, but yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah. That's and it's, it's also interesting that uh, Stephen King. Uh, he was very close friends with my mentor and one of my defenders in New Zealand, who was Stephen Jay Gould, and uh, Gould. Uh, he he actually he another brilliant writer like King. It's easy to see how they got along. Gould was really paleontology's poet. Uh, if you find any of his books, I mean, just randomly go to a paragraph. It's like music. And uh, another odd connection is that uh, he was one of the peop- one of the first people who went into the ruins of Ground Zero. And uh, one of the first people, he had previously had cancer. He was doing very well. 
but he went in with a compromised immune system, got very sick, and uh, passed away in May of 2002. His wife, Rhonda Shearer, was... I actually ended up doing the forensic archaeology with her. And uh, some of you may have heard the story of Ladder 4, where there was this complete hoax that was made up that there was a group of firemen who were looting while the towers burned, and there was big news for a while. And behind the scenes, it was horrible. Uh, It was you had journalists who knew the story was fake, and who said to me and to Rhonda Shearer and others, you will be quiet about this. We'll break your heart. Wow. And, uh, you know, there was no way. We both blew the whistle. And uh, her work, uh, she had done all of the geopositioning satellite uh, data, uh, I mean, to the inch of every object that was found along the strip of uh, wreckage underneath Liberty Street. And so when the story of the hoax came out, that there was this fire truck full of uh, folded and stacked blue jeans and this fire crew had uh, been looting instead of saving lives, for one, they had picked the wrong fire crew. They picked the one that had clear communications that were recorded for every one of their 23 minutes at site. Uh, the guy who wrote the thing claiming that he saw this with his own eyes, he was using his easy pass on the bridge in Philadelphia, and there was a photograph of him in his car <laughs> on that <laughs> night. Of, uh, yeah, yeah. And someone had tried to say, oh, well, you know, it's not in the FEMA footage, but that's, you know, uh, that can be removed in digital footage uh, because the truck was actually photographed during its excavation. And I said, that's what I like about people who watch too many episodes of what I then regarded as a nice science fiction show, CSI. And I said, in real life, we use 35 millimeter film and uh, we have datable events on that film. And the night that truck was found happens to be, anyone can check this out, my twin's birthday. So I have their birthday celebration on the negatives alongside all the ground zero stuff. And so it was confessed to that, oh, well, I was accurately reporting the history of a rumor I heard. They went forth and published this anyway. One of the lawyers said, uh, well, the crew of Ladder 4 and Engine 54, they're all dead. No one can sue. Well, I blew my top. Oh, yeah, I'm man. A, I'll admit it. I, I blew my top. I used some bad words. I said, when I'm talking the wrong end of a horse, I'll speak to it any way I speak it. And it deteriorated from that point on. <laughs> hey, hey. Well, I, I'm glad you did because not only, I mean, you were standing up for those, for the firefighters. I mean, they were out there trying to save lives and, they're, yeah. oh, wow. I, I, just listening to it, they had actually I'm cut, my top. <laughs> that crew, Ladder 4, they had actually cut two women out of a crashed elevator that was being heated by fire from below, uh, saved them. Uh, their Hearst cutting tool uh, was found in February of the next year. But on top of that, 
Robert Vargas, a Port Authority police officer, was at the revolving door when the South Tower began to fall. Wow. He is one of the most amazing wow. shock cocoon survival cases in human history. And he was looking right at them up to their last seconds of life before he ducked for cover and survived. Uh, where Vargas was, the forces near the northeast corner of the South Tower were the equivalent of a 38 caliber bullet spread over one square inch. Wow. But wow. The forces diverged completely around him. Uh, interesting that the whole damn blast theory began with, uh, and then I come back to the Titanic to working ground zero. And one of the key pieces of vindicating evidence was a man who's a Port Authority police officer who survived in a shock cocoon. Some of the strange connections are really just too strange. They're stranger than fiction. You couldn't write that as fiction and have suspension of disbelief in the reader. Now, I know, um, you know, still continuing on talking about the towers and everything else. Uh, I don't know if you, you can let me know if you still do this or not, but I, I remember at one point uh, you were actually auctioning off um, some of your uh, styrofoam cups that you would shrink while going down From on your dive to Titanic. And yeah. you know the proceeds were going to the uh, you know, to the firefighters uh, charities and things like that. Right, right. The firefighters burn center is uh, one of the ones that I contribute to, and that takes care of burn victims all over the country. I think uh, around the world now, and it's not just for firefighter burn victims, but anyone. And it's their expenses are really taken care of. It's it's sort of like St. Jude's Hospital where. Every dime of it goes where it's supposed to go. Oh, that's good. Excellent. And I'm also um, looking now into the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. So some styrofoam cups. And there are things that we did during the Cameron expedition to the Titanic uh, that uh, were made and strictly for <coughs> charitable, uh, like the shrinking, signing and shrinking of the cups. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's very yeah, nice. For, for for those that are you know coming into the uh, Titanic collecting, that's that, that, that's what, what what we consider the one of the hotbed items. That's uh, yeah, that's something that actually dove to the wreck itself. Yeah, yeah. So, you know. um, now, Charles, I I do I do have to say something. Um, we actually have a really good friend of yours who's been listening to the show he's been really quiet but we have a friend of yours who called in before you did and we spoke to him before we went live i'm here okay <laughs> say hello could i just do you want to put I them on okay. i'm here oh golly i have to say is one of the most brilliant persons I've ever known with the kindest and most truthful heart of anybody I've ever met in my life. And the fact that he's been so maligned and lied about 
on social media by the trolls that follow him to this day breaks my heart. And I hope to God that it gets cleared up someday soon because they're destroying him. And it's terrible. Well, the strange thing is it has been cleared up. There's been articles, uh, for example, by Peter Lee, and that was picked up, published by Stratfor all around the world. But all these vindicating reports somehow on the Yahoo and Google search engines, they go down way beyond page six. And if you want to keep, you know, national secrets, just have them get put them beyond, just put them on page 10, you know, on the Google. The, the trolls keep following you, sorry, and it's got to stop. So. Yeah, you, yeah. Uh, you, you, you did mention that to me uh, last night on Facebook, and I'm completely, I, I completely apologize. I usually don't do show pages with Wikipedia because my first year of college, um, that's when Wikipedia was kind of blowing up. Um, my college professor, he said, your first paper is due. And I tell you one thing, if you use a Wikipedia <laughs> yeah. reference, you already filled the paper. So yeah. I should have they taken that into that science too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I should have, and in fact, I, I told that to William last night. I was like, Oh, I hope I didn't piss Charles off. <laughs> I think he's mad. No, it's a, a wrong button got pushed somewhere, and that happens, you know. But it's yeah. also just shows you. I mean, if you go, if you especially went to the conversations between the editors, their the communications, which some of it they try to wipe away, but it's all well preserved on hard copy, and. Uh, but it's amazing how they concoct this thing that, you know, his dives to the Titanic were fake. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and if you go to Wikipedia, you know, they, they will Titanic, fake, Jurassic Park. No, 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 that wasn't him. <laughs> and, you know, we mentioned New Zealand a while ago and how the original, when I originally brought out the Jurassic Park recipe, how... This evangelical woman, who, by the way, ironically, another strange connection, we ended up meeting in 1991, September, in Jerusalem during riots, where we were all together, you know, walled in in Christchurch compound, and I'm with this uh, friend I've made, Reverend Jill Potter, and uh, we're sitting around at a table eating, and I'm cracking open an egg, and I recognize this radio evangelist (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I figured, well, why should the police and the rioters be the only ones having fun? I'm cracking an egg, and I turn to her, and I say, so how about that, Charles Darwin? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what do you think she would have said to me? Take a guess what she would have said to me at that moment. Go to hell. Good job. Nope. Shut up. That's <laughs> No, she said something that left me, which is unusual, completely speechless for a moment. God she said, uh, Jesus told me I was going to meet you and that I was, uh, that I have to apologize and I was very unchristian and very judgmental to you. Whoa. Wow. I mean, that was <laughs> quite a shock. In fact, I wrote about that in Return to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
and uh, one strange event. And uh, then later on, she's walking with me and Gloria and Reverend Jill, and uh, you know, she seemed uh, pretty sane compared to in New Zealand. And then she points to the Temple Mount and starts pointing and yelling in the middle of the street about that abomination that they have to tear down. I said, okay, let's walk in another direction. Uh, hi, so see you later. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> uh, strange things about what happened with Jurassic Park. Now, remember, I was run out of the country because of coming up with that recipe. And now New Zealand has been minting for years, a few years now, a commemorative silver coin. And this year they did a limited edition gold coin of Jurassic Park. And I'm told during the last year that there was actually my lab, the lab that was busted up uh, in the New Kirk building in Wellington, that they had a brass plaque in front of the door, the Jurassic Park began in this room and I've heard (laughs) the plaque has been repeatedly ripped down from the wall and replaced. So apparently there's still factions of, you know, a couple of professors who were behind this ad hoc stuff who have still been, who have passed away since. And yet apparently they still have friends. Uh, I mean, Jim Cameron's living in New Zealand now, so I guess they'll have some of his people look further into that from what I hear it's actually quite funny well I mean, um, of course you know oh. you've got to find the humor in those sorts of things or you go yeah, mad. I mean, should we should we embarrass Charlie now oh. yeah let, let, let's do that shall we uh, we were driving down in the deep Brooklyn in the middle of the night not a great neighborhood Charlie's first issue with him in it of Omni Magazine had just come out. We're in the car. I stop at a traffic light, and Charlie sees a magazine stand in a bodega. He leaps out of the car, runs into the bodega, grabs the Omni, and opens it to his article and starts shouting at the people in there, this is me, this is me. Nobody spoke English. Oh God! And he he to did that. that. I'm very capable of getting down. lost in they, a one-aisle deli. And they 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 were stunned. And he ran back in the car. We sped away. <laughs> one of many. Well, well, I mean, what uh, what thing? I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to say that I'm, I'm actually on the bandwagon on this one. Charlie, with all of the wild things that have happened to you that you've shared over the years, I mean, you know, even this one with the bodega as well, too. When are you going to write an autobiography? And when can we expect a film adaptation? I mean, especially now that you're friends with Jim. I mean, I'm sure we could probably make it a James Cameron film. <laughs> so you'd be a science fiction novel, <laughs> you know, my, uh, minus the diamond, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, which diamond? Heart of the ocean. <laughs> oh, oh, I thought you meant the little red one, but that's another. That's a story for another time. Exactly. <laughs> oh. 
Hey, uh, uh, Charles, there, there is somebody else I want to bring on. Um, when we were kind of uh, leaving comments on Facebook last night, um, there was a young man by the name of Anthony who ah. uh, said, post, uh, put, uh, change everything. This is what you have to say about Charles. So we totally fixed the whole show page. And it is thanks to Anthony, and I believe Anthony is on the phone right now. Yes, I'm here. I'm here. Uh, hello. I recognize the voice. <laughs> yes, this is uh, Anthony L. Corey from Florida. Anthony, how yeah. are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, William? Good. I mean, you know, like I was telling Francie, I mean, in the six years we've known each other on Facebook, tonight's the first time we're actually talking in person. I know, I know. It's a remarkable era, right? You can know someone online before you've even had a conversation, you know? Exactly. (laughs) Well, I do have a question for Dr. Pellegrino, actually, um, now that I'm here, so. Glad you joined us. Okay. Yes, Yes, it's wonderful to be on. Okay. Yes. So, sure. uh, so Charlie, I was wondering. Um, so you've you've actually been to the Titanic site with uh, George Tulloch and uh, you know the yeah. acclaimed polymath James Cameron and and everyone. And I was wondering, as someone who's actually been there and and you know seen uh, archaeology unfold at the site, uh, what is it that you look forward to most in the field? Uh, you know, where do you see this the subject of Titanica, as they call it, going? Oh boy, it's controversial, but I don't I don't know how many people listening know about uh Howard Irwin and Pearl and that a steamer trunk George Tulloch raised a steamer trunk that had these letters and diaries mm-hmm. in them and they were <clears throat> when I first met Jim Cameron I said how did you know about Howard Irwin? Because this was a story that was, it was almost the same story in many ways. And he said he didn't. It's almost as if as he was scripting this thing, he you know, was echoing these letters that were, had just been raised from the bottom of the ocean and were being uh, the black, uh, sulfur was being removed from them and we were reading them all for the first time hadn't yet uh, found the families but then the families were eventually found and it, it was really an amazing story I wrote about it in some detail in Farewell Titanic uh, the real story is in its own way even more tragic than uh, the, in the film Titanic but I won't spoil it uh, but yeah, even there, among other things, there are just so many odd coincidences like that surrounding the Titanic. I had asked Jim how he knew about the necklace uh, that was almost put down at the uh, 10 miles south of the Titanic's debris field in 1996, and the, the whole little ceremony had been interrupted by something else. And I asked him how he knew about this necklace. Uh, the necklace I'm talking about has a large green moldavite, which is a gemstone created by an asteroid impact 15 million years ago. But it does have 
It has a whole ra- the whole rainbow spectrum of all the different types of sapphires, and uh, they're brought together in the middle over the Moldavite by a yellow diamond, a red diamond, and a blue diamond. And I asked Jim how he knew about that, and uh, he didn't know about that either. And that it had almost been put down to the Titanic uh, to join two rings that were also south of the Titanic's debris field, miles south of it, uh, so that no one would ever find them and confuse them with artifacts from the Titanic, especially as one of them has uh, the year... 1975 on it and East Rockaway High School from Long Island. But uh, the necklace was almost, I had almost put it down there to keep the ring company. And uh, Bill Broad, a writer from the scientist, science writer at the New York Times, had come up behind me and snapped a photo and that interrupted it. We began talking. He said he had never seen that expression on a face before. Wow. But, uh, the necklace is still in my family, but everyone is instructed no one should ever, ever wear it ever again. Because <laughs> uh, not superstitious, but there are very tragic and- memories behind it regarding the two people who had worn it. Understandable there. Wow. Now, you'll get kind of following Wasn't there the, also, uh, the quest- I believe, uh, the the uh, the love of the sea necklace is also a parallel with the heart yes, of the ocean. Yes, uh, Betty Ann Phillips, right? It, it's remarkable and how many parallels that her father built, you know? had, that her father with a, a, a there was a blue sapphire in it and it was surrounded by diamonds and it was given by her father to uh, her mother. And they were sailing on the Titanic to leave, and uh, it, was, it was a whole messed up love triangle thing that went on. And out of it, Betty Ann Phillips was born after the, nine months after the Titanic sank. And meanwhile, her mother descended into mental illness after the Titanic sank and treated her daughter horribly. And she grew up, the daughter grew up having resentment toward Melvina Dean because her mother had held Melvina Dean in her arms in a lifeboat. And she always felt she held a stranger's child and yet not me. And interestingly, when people were attacking Betty and saying she had no right to claim to be a Titanic survivor or the youngest survivor, and then they tried to say she was, uh, that the guy wasn't really her father, she was illegitimate or whatever, and they'll find the dean came in and said, there are no illegitimate children, and, and Melvina Dean really came all the way to her defense. And oh, wow. That was a beautiful thing. Yeah. That was a beautiful thing. Yeah, Mel- wow. Mel- Melvina was, had, had a heart of gold. Um yeah, you know, and uh, you know, in in fact, uh, kind of touching upon our, you know, my uh, my memory of the uh, of the convention, uh, Charlie, do you, you know, I I, I want to take an opportunity to thank you because you know you you were the one that invited Cindy and I to join you guys at the uh, at afternoon tea with Melvina. Yeah, and, yeah, you know. 
No, this is Francie. You're you're going to love this story. This is you know, believe it or not. This was one of the very few times that Cindy and I, in almost 27 years together, actually had an argument. And of all places, it's in front of a Titanic survivor. What? And the board of directors, Ed Charles. <laughs> And it, but it boiled down to, and I, for the life of me, I still don't remember who it was. But when we were, you know, we were all sitting there at the table, and understandably, the discussion came up as to what would you do if you were on the ship that night. I remember and that. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and understandably, uh, you know, I said that you know I would be following the rule of the sea and you know I would be escorting my wife to the lifeboat and you know stepping back oh, and good. I, I was afraid that you were going to say you were going to push her over the boat well considering how crazy the argument got <laughs> there was a temptation to change the, the answer <laughs> and then of course so I want to push you overboard there it came up, but do we, do we not have hindsight and I had yes. said uh, the first thing, if I had hindsight, the first thing I would have done was get Lightola the hell off the ship, throw him in the lifeboat. He was great once he was out in the lifeboat. He saved lots of lives. But yep. Darn, he even sank the ship faster. Go open that door there, Dan. There and <laughs> oh, bad idea. And then the inquirer is like, did it not strike you kind of as a bad idea to open these? Uh, gangway doors in the lower bow of a ship that was sinking by the back. No, it didn't at the time. Why is that? Wow, it was the Titanic. It couldn't sink. Oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> yeah, the unsinkable. I think he was more focused on getting the doors open than actually realizing he had to get them closed afterwards. Yeah. Mm. They had to actually close the doors, I think, uphill or something. And the crew and that it, went in and giant iron doors. It was, almost, it was almost at the time that the water reached it and they wouldn't have been able to. They wouldn't have been able to get the door closed again. They would not have been able at that because the port door. side was leaning over toward the port side, and the door swung out, and they had no chance. Yeah. And weren't the men that were supposed that, to open it so never Scotland heard Road would have flooded very, very fast. Then they wouldn't have been able to wade through the water. That's for sure. Now, you know, kind of, kind of going you know, as a follow-up to my uh, question about Stephen King, um, how did he end up crossing paths and meeting J- James Cameron? Uh, I all right, it was uh, oh, about May twentieth, nineteen ninety-seven, and uh, and I had first met Mary, <laughs> and uh, we walked into my. Uh, place in my office in Long Beach and the phone rang and uh, it was the message, the answering machine came up and it was, hi, uh, this is Jim Cameron. I'm making this film and uh, I've been reading a book you wrote. Her name's Titanic and so then I went and picked up the phone. Of course. And funny things because then days later I'm out in California and uh, we're having uh, salads and uh, uh, along the line, he, uh, early, it's our very first meeting, and uh, we're at this outdoor restaurant. He says, uh, so, who are your favorite writers? 
And right off the top of my tongue, with the first three I start mentioning, I mentioned Holland Ellison. And then I go, oops. You know that whole story about Terminator and everything. And the funny thing is, Holland and Jim were both fans of each other. I mean, Holland until the end, he loved the movie The Abyss. He loved the movie Titanic. And Jim really liked Holland's work. And there was some. And then you get to uh, the TV series, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and they have two characters named Ellison and Cameron. But uh, he's like, oh, don't worry. Don't worry. I I like Holland's work, too. We like a lot of the same people, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and Steinbeck and so on. Stephen King, of course. I mean, he's Real like King. a modern-day Charles Dickens. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, whoever, whoever says that they are not a fan of Stephen King, come on. <laughs> come on. There are really a lot of household names who, when you read their writing, it just reads very dry. King has the music of the words. I mean, he can be writing about peeling an orange, and there's just a rhythm to his words that uh, you don't see with that many writers. You see it with people like Kurt Vonnegut, John Steinbeck, and uh, you know, a few others. Arthur C. Clarke had it. Isaac Asimov had it. Stephen Jay Gould had it. Carl Sagan had it. Walter Lord definitely had it. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> yeah. Yep, definitely. Now, so now, um, what what thing uh, you know coming into the realm of science fiction, and I'll admit it, I was actually floored when I read it. It's in in your book of uh, Ghosts of Vesuvius, and it's that little side footnote observation about the the fact that had it up been you know that the asteroid hit the Earth sixty five million years ago, that we would actually have dinosaurs in space. And yeah, it could be it, because it, some of the theropods were developing very high intelligence. Their brains are very efficiently wired together. And some of them, the ostrich dinosaurs, for example, had manipulative limbs. So uh, it could have gone anywhere had that not happened. We don't know for sure. Uh we haven't found any definitive Homer erectus-style hand axes in the Cretaceous, but uh, it could have gone that way. There are many points where, I mean, the Minoan civilization might have had an industrial revolution and gone to space, if not 1628 to 1640 B.C., a volcanic eruption that uh, changed the world. I mean, destroyed civilizations in China, froze California bristlecone pines for a couple of years, the years without any summer. And it happened again in 535, although by then the Roman Empire really was pretty much finished. I mean, people went on about Byzantium and still calling it the Holy Roman Empire, but uh, especially after... Constantinople had to be evacuated after the no summer, the plague, 
and everything about 535 A.D., uh, Well, the Holy Roman Empire really wasn't an empire, and it wasn't even Roman, and it definitely wasn't holy. (laughs) That was still pretty much a free-for-all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were places where you still had street lighting and uh, civilization and libraries and hygiene and aqueducts, Jerusalem, Cordoba, Spain. Parts of China soon afterwards still surviving, but uh, not much else. Yeah. And 535 AD also, that's around the time Teotihuacan fell in Mexico. Wow. And in fact, uh, the eruption that caused all that disruption (coughs) might have come from El Salvador. Okay. Yeah. There was a huge volcanic eruption there. Yeah. yeah. And now, that was, was a borderline extinction level event. Yeah. I mean, you know, in one sense, we're lucky that it was just that borderline. I mean, it, it was, you know, if it, if it was complete extinction. We wouldn't be able to talk about it today, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, it was an eruption that uh, 75,000 years ago, approximately, give or take a few hundred years, uh, had us down to a population of maybe six or 7,000 human beings. And we're all descended from that group of human beings. <clears throat> and yet, you know, we've somehow divided and we're all fighting with each other and you know, riots in the streets and all this stupidity that we're going through now. Because over the last few hundred years, yes, humans have been very good at mistreating each other. When I work in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it's like once upon a time there were only three atomic bombs in the whole world. We humans tested one to see that it would work, and we dropped the other two on ourselves. Yeah. Now, are are you still working uh, over there uh, in, in Japan these days too? Yeah, yeah, I'm still receiving new survivor accounts, and uh, you know, a lot of them are in the. There, you can access them by my website. Going to it's Japan's largest newspaper that has now the largest internet. Uh, a collection of English trans, two English translated survivor accounts of Hiroshima and Nagasaki survivors. But yeah, I'm still working on that. I'm still working on about five other things and will never ever retire unless someone puts it. Nothing can stop me really but bullets. Now, I've been crashed well, twice in submersibles. I've been plane crashed twice. So, uh, <laughs> Or we show up with strange diseases that doctors never saw before. <laughs> Get better. <laughs> you know, you're, you're the doctor was giving me three months. I got better. My doctor died, but uh, you're a survivor. <laughs> every yeah, you know, people. I, I see people who get depressed about their birthdays, and every birthday I have, it's like, what am I still doing here? This is amazing. <laughs> 
Surprise. Into that. Now, I, I guess comes the next question. And then there's Yo. the threat of dying from my own stupidity. Like in 2001, just before the Titanic expedition, I, I had just seen the movie uh, AI. Because oh, friend yeah. said, you know, you should do Great this movie. before you go to the Titanic. And so I'm on 42nd and 9th and step right in fridge. I'm thinking of what we're going to see and what the robots are going to reveal inside the Titanic not paying attention to where I'm going. And I almost stepped out in front of a bus. And this one oh, woman God. reached out, grabbed me by the back of my shirt, yanked me back, and uh, the bus was, she yanked me back, and the bus went by uh, about a foot in front of my face. Mirror wow. went by, bus went by, wow. and it was uh, that close a thing to either, you know, going exploring whatever's after death or going through the rest of my life severely brain damaged. Again? Oh, no. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, instead of the uh, unsinkable Mary Brown, you're the undeathable Dr. Charles. Well, one of the guys who was on yeah. the phone with you before, he keeps saying, well, you know, he's the real Forrest Gump. He just Forrest Gumps his way through history. <laughs> I mean, my invitation to sail with Bob Ballard was because I was all about space, and uh, the whole thing was that the robot probe that probed the Titanic was uh, an ancestor of what Jim Powell and I were designing to get under the ice of Jupiter's moon Europa. And uh, so we had a look at the present state of deep ocean robotic technology, and he was like, yeah, it's a good thing. This Pellegrino guy, he's the one person who will not ask me about the Titanic. He's all about space. <laughs> and the interesting thing is if you look through the years, Ballard and Sigurdsson and all the people on that ship ended up infecting me with, you know, getting me back down to Earth and infecting me with their uh, area or disease and their area of exploration. And you'll notice that Bob Ballard is looking out now toward Europa and Titan and insulator. <laughs> we infected each other. It took a while, yeah. but it got there. Yeah. Yeah, well, you kind of traded uh, fields, that's all. Mm. <laughs> so, I know, well, I mean, there really a difference between all different you... fields. Hmm? Is there really Wait. a difference between Europa and Titanic these days? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, from, from an astrobiologist. The question I never got around to answering, which is, you know, what when I go down to the Titanic, it's <clears throat> to me half the excitement, maybe even more of it, is the biology and all the wildlife you pass through on your way through the deep scattering layer, two and a half miles down to the bottom of the ocean. Then all the hydrothermal vent organisms that are colonizing the Titanic, including the rusticles. Excuse me, one second. The rusticles that are hanging down from almost every inch of the Titanic now, they're a most amazing organism. They're a living fossil dating back maybe as far as 3 billion years ago, maybe more. They're showing us how organized multicellular life began. Even before, even when there were just fungi and bacterial cells, before there were true nucleated cells like we have 
in our bodies that uh, you have these consortia of more than 20 different type of bacterial and fungal cells that are actually organized into tissue layer assignments. If they were not built of bacterial and fungal cells, we would say that the rusticles on the Titanic belong to the field of uh, zoology, just like sponges. Yeah. And uh, they're an amazing organism that in many ways are, as far as fascination, they equal the dinosaurs. They came up to the level of dinosaurs very quickly with me. That's, that's a question I definitely wanted to, here's a question I definitely wanted to ask you. Is Do you think they'll ever bring the Titanic up or do they want to leave it there? They did in a in movie. 1985, yep. yeah, but in 1985, in the condition it was in then, it might have been just about possible if you had the equipment already. And uh, we had designed it, and, uh, you know, Jim Powell and George Mays and a couple of other people and I, we had Zerad Corporation and had actually designed a way to do it. And, uh, in fact, a much, much scaled-down version of it using the bags of diesel, uh, that's what raised the Titanic's big piece. But to do that today with the whole bow section of the Titanic, I think it would now be like trying to lift a cardboard box full of things and the box is wet. And uh, uh, I don't yeah. think the anchor point, you were, I think, and plus, <clears throat> when the Titanic was first discovered, uh, it was possible to think of raising it. And, uh, you know, we saw it first as an engineering challenge and how to do it and how to do it economically. Uh, in fact, at one point, someone from the Trump organization, this is about 1987, was actually discussing uh, raising the Titanic and what to do with it after you raise it. You would have it as a display still underwater. And uh, uh-huh. the people could experience what submersible divers experience moving over and around the Titanic. But, uh, you know, then the idea of, okay, we can do this. Maybe we shouldn't do it. And, uh, and, of course, along the way, then Arthur C. Clarke wrote that novel, The yep. Ghost from the Grand Banks, which uh, he said, this is not going to be a big action adventure thing like Rendezvous with Rama. This is going to be a string quartet about the fractal universe. And it's quite a beautiful book. I, I really love that novel, although I'm prejudiced because at the end he has me as me with Bob Ballard standing over the gravesite of the character that's based on me, Jason Bradley. And if you read the novel, no, that is not what I was up to in New Zealand with some madam. <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, you guys. Um, I, I wanted to interject for a second. Um, yeah. I, I've been in and out of the show because, uh, well, Francie's like doing her thing and you guys, it, it, it's been a great show so far. Uh, I, I've been, uh, when thinking about the Titanic, um, I don't know if this was brought up. Maybe it was, and I'll embarrass myself. Uh, the fire, 
Where, did you guys talk about the fire? Oh, the coal Not fire? Yet. Yeah, because uh, I saw a thing yeah. about a week and a half ago on YouTube about the real cause of the sinking of the Titanic. It's not the iceberg. There was a fire going on that no. they neglected, <laughs> that that um, that warped um, part of it, and the, the that part of it that, that crashed into the iceberg would have been uh, – uh, it, it wouldn't have sunk if it wasn't for uh, this fire. And, and they went on to say – that um, uh, that the people that knew about it kept it uh, from the public, and they they told the captain of the ship or something like that when when it uh, when it when it um, when it went off to only film one side of it because the other side had like a black like soot from the fire, and uh, mm-hmm. and they were weren't going to actually. Oh, uh, do, you, do you know what I'm talking about, though? Is yeah. that a yeah, rumor? Yeah. yeah, George Tullock was the first person to really begin looking into the testimony and saw him with the fire. Yes, there was some warping. Uh, I don't think it made that much of a difference in the rate of sinking. They closed the door to that coal bunker. It filled up with water, and <clears throat> there was a point... The, the coal bunker broke in an area that probably had nothing to do with the bulkhead where the fire had been. And uh, once that coal bunker broke and the weight shifted, the Titanic was going down no matter what. And that fire aft of where the warping was to the bulkhead right in front of it really had nothing it really didn't have an effect except, as Park Stevenson has pointed out, one important aspect of it, because the crew had, when there's a coal bunker fire, you empty all the coal out of that coal bunker and put it into the furnaces first. And coal, wow. of course, is heavier than water, so what you had was on the port side of the ship, you had full coal bunkers, and so the ship was listing to port. Uh, and, oh, what's his name? Lawrence Beasley, he even mentioned in his uh, book and his recollections of the sinking of the Titanic that uh, the ship had been gaining a list to port throughout the voyage. That list to port to the coal-heavy side of the ship, and Beasley correctly guessed they must be taking coal from the starboard side and it's heavier on the port side. They'll trim it out later. Now, when you have a breach on a ship on one side, almost always what happens is like the the Costa Concordia, the ship immediately starts listing toward that side and it capsizes. Had that ship not grounded uh, the Costa Concordia when it capsized, everyone would have died if they had been out in deeper water. Uh, The Titanic would, if you didn't have the list to the port side, the ship would have uh, just gone over, filling toward the starboard side, filling, filling, and leaning over, but the ports, it began pulling to port. Uh, She would have probably capsized, like most ships in that situation do. What do you think about, there's there's another uh, rumor about the binoculars room. 
the, the yeah, binoculars well, the, yeah. room um, where uh, the person that was in charge of that that held the only key, uh, but he ended up getting fired and he wasn't on the Titanic and mm. he had the only key and there's usually, you know, people with binoculars that would normally look out for an iceberg, but they didn't have binoculars because the room with, well, that was filled was with lock, all the binoculars they, was locked. Have you heard about that rumor? Doors, but they, that wouldn't have mattered the key. They were kicking down doors to do what they had to do. And after kicking them down, uh, Thomas Andrews was seen throwing doors overboard so that people might have something to float on. <clears throat> oh, wow. And, and then uh, and they were trying yeah, to but, kick down doors would have been used only uh, in ports. Right, right. I, I dealt but with that binoculars. The guys in the crow's nest, they didn't have binoculars. Uh, even there, it was against them. Uh, if you look at the actual testimony of Boxall's walk, and uh, Walter Lord and I had timed all that out in his living room. Walter dictated to me, and I walked a certain distance, and they timed it. And uh, by all the interlinked pieces of testimony from uh, – the bridge and near the bridge, uh, they were hitting the iceberg as they saw it. And also oh, we wow. have the Corian uh, passenger who was low down in the rooms on the starboard side, and he went out to close the porthole because there was an overheating problem in the rooms, and they, but he began to feel the draft, and he went to close the porthole, and he saw icebergs on the ship's starboard side in the distance, uh, crossing in front of the stars. They were deep into that ice sheet. Now, what's most likely to happen is you're going to see a small growler going along the port side or the starboard side, or you'll see a large bird going along the side, and you know to call the bridge and tell them to stop. Here, the first iceberg they saw was directly in front of them, and the first impact was really actually... Uh, on the starboard side uh, near the spiral stairs, pretty inboard was the first impact uh, by the iceberg against the above-water body of the ship. And uh, you had the testimony from the crow's nest that uh, they were just telling the bridge the iceberg, what did you see? Iceberg dead ahead and... They said that the ship was already turning direction, that it was already hitting the ice. They didn't have any 32 seconds in which to make the turn. They hit that ice oh, wow. probably at exactly the angle they were aimed when they first saw it, within five seconds. A, a, lot, of, a lot of debates, a lot of debates that my brothers had. <laughs> I've listened to them, and they were saying, okay, the, the Titanic was coming to America. Do you think that it's better or worse that, you know, I, I don't know how to say it because, come on, they're, they're boys. Okay, they're teenage boys. Is America better that the Titanic sank, or is it going to be better that, it would have made it, and, you know, all these people would have flourished to America. I, okay, that was probably a stupid question. 
But have, Actually, have you guys I think ever thought about that? Alternate histories written. Yeah, yeah. In fact, Walter Lord and I had been called when the series Quantum Leap had gone into yep. where he was moving back through his life, uh, back mm-hmm. through his ancestors in the last season, and they were planning another season. And Walter Lord and I were asked if we would like to write a two-parter about the Titanic. And we had Yay! just the right idea. We, we wrote up a treatment and where the ancestor was Thomas Andrews. And it begins with, oh, what's his name? was always talking to Ziggy. Uh, you know, the hologram uh, yeah. guy. And yeah. uh, it's the year 2020 and he's in Venice. And Europe is going to be destroyed by this asteroid. And he's looking up with a drink and, you know, why here? Why did you have to come here? It's not the world that's being destroyed. It's uh, Europe that's going to be hit. And there's a chain of events going back through, uh, you know, the International Ice Patrol, which really through some people who are involved in that and with the Navy and everything. And Arthur C. Clarke came up with the idea of Project Space Watch and then Project Space Guard. And meanwhile, he's back on the Titanic as Thomas Andrews, and he manages to stop the ship from sinking. And then that's where this whole chain reaction of things happens. And, you know, where in Quantum Leap, there was always a reason for him being there. But he, and sometimes the character throughout the series, misunderstands why he's there and then finds out, like in the, JFK two-parter yeah. and that why he was there was really to save Jackie. Oh, what a be- You've got to look at some of the best episodes of Quantum Leap. Walter Lord and I both became big fans of that. And yeah, it turned out that I, in I that story, I... what he was there, he has to go back now and uh, he's back again. And what it is, is he has to let Thomas Andrews let the Titanic sink. But that in the end, Thomas Andrews dies knowing that what he's doing then is saving many more lives and whole cities and, and everything. And that, you know, that it's not all for nothing that he's saving many more lives than he lost. And of course that came out of a real thing because there's actually research in the deep ocean pharmacy and some of it heading into cancer research, uh, from some of the things found associated with the rusticles. And uh, I've always, I, it's always on, it was already then in the time of Quantum Leap on my mind that uh, if only Thomas Andrews could have known that this possibility exists, that where his ship sank, people will go there and this discovery of this possibility will be found. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, cor- correct me if I'm wrong, because. Um, you know, you're 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 the microbiologist, but uh, if I remember correctly, I think um, according to one of the first reports that came out and uh, from RMSTI back around '96, there was an yeah. estimated uh, 600,000 new types of bacteria that were found during the course of that expedition alone. Um, no, have, more like about 30. Oh wow! More oh, like wow. about thirty. Yeah. Yeah, and 
you know, since since you've uh, gone down there a few times, there are have probably you noticed... that many new organisms to see. I mean, it's amazing. The organisms you see inside the Titanic are different from the ones outside, including the bat-tailed fish. Now, along the uh, continental spreading centers, you have these spreading centers and then cracks that go out for hundreds of miles from them. And some of the cracks are about, you know, you can't even really get a robot in them, but we know they go down very deep. And uh, there must be life down there. We have all sorts of hydrothermal vents, even chemically-based ones, like at the Lost City hydrothermal vent. And we think that inside the Titanic, we're probably seeing what is down in those cracks where we have not yet explored. And, of course, eggs drifting across the ocean floor in those very cold temperatures. We estimate some of the fish eggs, for example, and uh, rustical cysts uh, that eventually grow into rustical consortia. They can probably drift along the bottom for 700 years or more just until they come up uh, along a friendly place. Wow. It's amazing down there. You know, now, I mean, um, you know, given the fact that we've only explored maybe at the most ten percent of the world's oceans, what what do you, what's on your what's on your bucket list for the hopeful next big find? You know, I mean, we found Titanic, Bismarck, and you know, parts of Alexandria. Oh, what, I think. Would, the biology down there, it will never stop being a place of big finds. And one thing, it's only, you know, preliminary from a few pictures, but uh, it's beginning to look like a lot of the wildlife in the last two years around the Titanic has died off. And we don't know why. Uh, oh. In 1985, the area around the Titanic was a biological desert. Then it became, it, it was blooming. Uh, by 2005, the Titanic was, by 2001, 2005, the hull of the Titanic is smeared with life. And uh, the 2021 expedition, looking at some of the same spots, there's much less wildlife <clears> there. <throat> Many fewer uh, brittle stars along the sea floor around the Titanic, and you know, a, a real census has to be done comparing the photographs and the video to see if that really is what's happening. And then why? Yeah, there's the, there's the actual the, process. Um, Does the bottom go through periods of bloom and then die off, or is it something we're doing that may be an artifact of overfishing? Because we yeah. are overfishing so much that, uh, you know, we're doing more, we're bringing more change to the oceans than we are actually to the Earth's atmosphere. And in fact, what we're doing in the oceans might be affecting the Earth's atmosphere uh, more so than all the cars putting all the carbon exhaust in the world at, uh, or at least maybe equaling it. Because when you overfish, you then have fewer small fish growing up and feeding on all the animal plankton. Now, in 2001, the deep scattering layer 
went from a layer that you would see on your radar about a half mile to a quarter mile down, it extended down to, uh, I was measuring it down to a half mile above the Titanic. It went almost all the way down. And you would occasionally see a piece of half of an uneaten shrimp falling to the bottom near the Titanic. Well, that never, as far as we know, never really happens, that you have uneaten food falling to the Titanic from the zoo, the animal plankton zone. Now, if there's a massive animal plankton bloom, that means that these organisms, that many of them migrate up to the surface every night. It's the largest migration on the planet in the Pacific and the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. And they feed, many of them feed on the plant plankton, the microscopic plants. It's mm-hmm. those that take the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, not the Amazon rainforest. It's the top 60 feet of the oceans. And if they're being okay, overgrazed, from what, we have what a problem. I heard, I, I'm not, like, really <laughs> smart about a lot of things. Um, I heard it was cow farts. Yeah, well, <laughs> more methane. No, my farts. And I've heard today they're planning on some, having some kind of mask. You're going to mask the cows now. You're going to mask their <laughs> That'll filter out saying on cows. And it's like, what are you people thinking? Do you realize how much methane is coming up from Siberia because of the warming? And how much methane may be released by the oceans? And methane is a powerful greenhouse gas. And and I'm kind of thinking now, me time I pass gas, or, you know, as, as they say it, farting. I, I kind of want to hold it down. Like, don't well, go up. Yeah. As far as climate goes, parts I'm aside, gonna, I'm... Uh, we've, we've already passed the tipping point. The methane releases from the tundra and everything, it really can and Alaska, it really cannot be stopped now. And uh, all we can do is adapt, and there are going to be changes. Some of them bad. The Russians will be happy with some of the changes, because guess what? Russia becomes the world's bread wheat basket now. You oh, don't have to oh warm boy. Russia up much before it can produce lots of wheat and rice and everything else. But, you know, I, I really do hold out the technology to cure a lot of our worries. Uh, you might have heard about the magnetic rail guns for launching payloads into space. This was where at Brookhaven we were taking a lot of weapons technology and converting it to, for instance, the cargo carrier into space for hardware, were especially for solar towers in space, would actually be redesigned reentry vehicles for nuclear warheads. And, oh. uh, but there's all sorts of names for it. I just call it the mag launch or the Vern launcher. It's something you can build today with off-the-shelf technology, and uh, in the United States, they won't allow it happen to happen. They keep, they've been arguing for 20 years, no, no, the sonic booms are too bad, uh, but it's basically you know, like the maglev train or the Hyperloop, and Musk has actually designed and tested uh, very good tunneling systems, and so if we could do it up the Rocky Mountains, 
uh, we could just build three or four of these things. And uh, for about 20 to $30 billion each, and we will be able uh, – the reason we don't have solar towers in space beaming clean solar power by microwave laser down to earth to, for electricity is that right now with the new NASA, <laughs> that rocket that they're building based on 1968 technology, which is too complex. Back then it really was, <laughs> that's rocket science. I don't know. We were so lucky getting as many Saturn rockets as we did without them blowing up. Uh, so NASA has this thing that is going to be about 20, more like about $30,000 per pound to orbit. Elon Musk rockets will soon be doing that for $1,200 a pound to orbit. But on the space station, they will still be drinking recycled urine because at a pound to orbit for water. But here's the thing. With mag launch for equipment only, it can't carry people up there, but it can carry equipment for mag launch or the Vern launcher. I named it after Jules Vern uh, space cannon. Uh, we can truck things into space for the cost of air freight or trucking a package across the country by truck. You know, thirty to fifty dollars a pound to orbit, and then it becomes feasible. Uh, to get all of these solar towers into orbit. They use little ion thrusters. A few months later, they're up 30,000 miles up. And uh, for about $600 billion, compare this to the New Green Deal and all of its uh, money that goes into people's pockets somewhere down the line, for $600 billion, that's less than a trillion dollars, we could be clean powering the entire United States and Europe. Wow. And Russia and China, all of Asia, India, Africa, North America, Canada, South America, Central America, all the islands of the Pacific. By okay. I, I, like, I, I like your idea a lot better than I like, um, you know, some somebody in office right now, so why don't you run for president? Then I wouldn't be have time to do all the science and engineering. Who builds it? I mean, the hey. last word we got from China was that their uh, Hyperloop no, design No, I, I, I meant China. that. I would, uh, they, I would they, totally vote for you as president. I, I didn't I didn't mean I, – I would vote for you as president. I oh, think you've got great ideas. We've had recently – I mean, look, every year we're asked to choose between Caligula and Nero. But yeah. uh, I don't – you know, I, I'd rather just be working on getting the ideas out there. Some country will do it. Some private corporation will do it. They'll get these things out there. I mean, uh, must Starship Launcher – would be able to carry up a full, uh, you know, up several of these solar towers. So you can test them out, test out the solar repair systems. In 15 years, we'd have, someone should have, actually, we should have had the mag launch system working by now. We should have had it. 
but I'm pretty confident that within the next five years, uh, there'll be one working somewhere and starting to launch things. Well, can, can you uh, uh, There are a lot of things going on in the world that worry me. In the U.S., in the last nine months, we've gone from where we were ready to work with Russia and China, uh, China also joining in, back toward nuclear arms reduction. And that was one of the things, you know, Trump was doing. It was one of the, he was doing a number of things very right, and that was one of them, because the biggest issue facing humanity is if we reach a food crisis in 2050, 2045, if, there's, if the carrying capacity of the earth goes from 9 or 10 billion, 10 billion, by the way, is about the limit, judging by population growth, we're leveling off naturally. We're probably not going to expand beyond 10 billion and uh, maybe level off near 9 billion about 2050. And that's good. And uh, the earth can easily sustain that. uh, If we end up, but if we reach a point where the earth's carrying capacity goes down to 2 billion, then we are on a, then when 2 billion, it goes down to 7 billion, I mean, when 2 billion people have to starve to death, there are wars and nations arming to the teeth with nuclear weapons. Those wars go chain reaction, possibly the end of civilization. Not the end of the Earth. The Earth will continue on at its own planetary scale, and maybe otters will build the next civilization, and the Earth will be like, no otter, don't shoot me yet. But uh, <laughs> it'll be all water slides. The next civilization just builds water slides. But uh, the thing is, Now, we're back to building, in the United States, three hydrogen bombs a week, Russia's nuclear arms escalation, China's Russia nuclear arms escalation, China's testing out the Pluto uh, weapon invented in the U.S., and uh, they're all versions of that thing, not just hypersonic nuclear strikes, but also deliberately spreading radiation over countries. And uh, But we're back to that craziness again. And we had accidents during the previous Cold War, and we're here only by luck. I mean, we did things like accidentally dropped an atomic bomb, two of them, in fact, armed. They armed themselves. I mean, these B-52s, the probability yeah. curves were, you know, there were 10 things that had to go wrong for those bombs to drop armed. Each of them improbable, but if you throw the dice enough, we drop them on North Carolina. And then three other things went wrong that were also improbable. And the bombs hit the ground and they misfired. And uh, we're here either by luck or if you're religiously inclined, I don't know. (laughs) God or... Someone flying or a kickback nearby looked down and stopped it. It was either luck nope. or someone from above was looking out for civilization. <laughs> but uh, we've got, I mean, as far as the food supply and clean water supply, technology can solve all these things, and common sense can solve a lot of it. Currently, around the world, we throw away 40% of the food we grow. And if you're looking to like 10 billion people and carrying capacity might go down to 
7 billion people. Well, you know what? If we could get that 40% cut it in half, that's, a, that's most of the way toward preventing civilization from crashing. Just cutting our wastage of food down to 20% from 40% does it. Uh, I, I think I count more on technology. And I wouldn't press sense. it on. I wouldn't press it on everyone, but At you know, I, I'm in, for myself. I'm okay eating insects. I, you know, I've been out in the field. I've eaten, you know, queen termites taste wonderful. By the way, but no. <laughs> I've eaten just about everything. Bug flies in my mouth. That guy who has bizarre foods on that show, bizarre foods. He's eating more strange. He's eating strange things that I wouldn't touch. So he's got the record. I wouldn't recommend eating rusticles, though, right, Charlie? Uh, No, no. You (laughs) you know that story, right? You know what happened to me (laughs) with the rusticles? In paleontology, you were always testing. You put a mineral, you know, a fossil on your tongue. Okay, these are the elements that are in that. That's what kind of shale this was. And in paleontology, you're always tasting things. Even in the field of archaeology, you're tasting that bit of brass, uh, bronze in China. And oh. uh, it gives you some clues as to how much copper content there's zinc in it. And so the rustical substrate that was the number six davit bit, is it boat six or boat eight? Anthony, which one was it? Well, that one was actually boat eight. Okay. Yeah. All right. Boat lifeboat eight. Lifeboat eight. Yeah. Lifeboat eight right. Yeah. Lifeboat eight. And so uh, there was some white that was being meta- material that was being metabolized by the rusticle. I knew mm-hmm. that the paint had been white. I said, well, should be able to solve that if there's zinc. And actually, there's a picture of Bill Paxton standing by and the the uh, robot designers standing by looking all disgusted and I'm tasting a rusticle. Yes, that is zinc. It's zinc. And, uh, by, by and the then way. Jim's by nearby with his camera he said, we may want to put that in the film. Do that again. So I do it again. Well, what we didn't know is I had a micro crack in a tooth uh, oh, that God. had been root canaled in 1965. So it was one of those antique root canals that were made out of iron. Yeah. Rusticles like nice, moist places. Yes, they three do. Years, <laughs> almost three years later, the cap on that tooth collapses. Oh, and, oh uh, geez. starts to collapse. <laughs> and uh, I figured, well, you know, I better get this looked at. Because you have to, before you go out to sea on an expedition, you, you don't want to be the one that has a dental emergency. There could be an abscess. And, you know, they have to fly a helicopter to rescue you, or they have to move the expedition to land. I mean, you, uh, you, you, you isolate yourself from getting a cold and everything. And you have to have all your dental up to really up to par. And so I go in, and uh, the guy's, trying to figure out these x-rays and my dentist sends me to an oral surgeon and the oral surgeon can't figure out he said this was root canaled huh where are hey! the in? and so you know he's well, giving me lots of, gonna... lots of novocaine nitrous oxide and then I hear him say, saying all sorts of curse words and everything he takes the thing off and he says I've never smelled anything like that in my life. I've never seen it. And then I, all of a sudden I'm saying, rusticles. 
And uh, <laughs> you know, by this time, he's he's dug everything out. He had to take what was left, a real deep oral surgery, take out these pieces of tooth that were no longer held to any, by anything, and there was all this rusty cheese, as he described it, which was. <laughs> and I said, "You got to give me a sample." I got to get this up to Roy Cullimore, who was the main microbiologist and an amazingly brilliant polymath in every area of science and history. And uh, but anyway, I said, I got to get this sample up to Roy and Laurie. And uh, the oral surgeon, because by now I've explained it to him, and he said, I put it in the autoclave an hour ago. What the oh, hell God. were you? You're lucky. I. What the hell were you doing, walking around with the thing that ate the Titanic in your mouth? <laughs> I, <laughs> would, you're lucky I would. I, I would have. CDC. I would have to totally and then agree I would have with that. To Dr. Fauci, and then. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't even put an onion in my mouth without throwing up. I can't even eat an onion. Yeah. If I eat onion. <laughs> It, it, oh, first, first bite. Another ball game, it, huh? Yeah. We are about to be well, the cut off. I never, we, we've had... the of any, I never eat the brains of any animals because, uh, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, don't do that. are scary. I knew of too many, you know, the New Guinea laughing sickness and everything. I was like, don't eat them. Don't I actually that. sent a letter to them after Survivor Australia. I said, don't have people eat animal brains again. And you <laughs> eat something disgusting, challenges. And I told them why, and they never did that again. Uh, but, but you eat cat food. <laughs> Good save. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and don't I, recycle I your urine to drink it. it. You gag, Don. <laughs> we we are about to be cut off of Block Talk Radio, and I don't want you to be cut off on mid-sentence. Uh, I will tell you this, and I know that Willie will probably go, giggity. Charles, we would love to have you back on. Okay. Okay. Yes, please. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.